Welcome to Doctors of the Church. In this fascinating series, Father Charles Connor examines the lives and writings of all 33 Doctors of the Church, including St. Thomas Aquinas, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, and Catherine of Siena. Now, here's Father Connor. Hello and welcome again to this series on the Doctors of the Church. In the mid-16th century, the Dominican Pope, St. Pius V, bestowed the title Doctor of the Church on four saints whom we generally refer to as the Eastern Doctors. John Chrysostom, Basil the Great, Gregory Nazianzen, and Athanasius. All four of these men lived their lives in the Byzantine Empire long before there was any split between the East and the West. And the spirituality and the teaching and the defense of the faith they all gave to the church is something which to this very day transcends any kind of East-West boundaries. So today then we look at these four Eastern doctors and we begin with the great John Chrysostom. This incomparable teacher, on account of the fluency and sweetness of his eloquence, obtained after his death the surname of Chrysostom, or Golden Mouth. So said one of his biographers. John Chrysostom was born at Antioch in Syria. He was the son of a commander of imperial troops. Now, in those days, the study of eloquence was considered to be one of the finest arts that one could study. And it certainly took root in John Chrysostom because he began studying the, the, the art of speaking, if you will, when he was a very, very young man. He studied in the city of Antioch under a teacher named Labanius, who was probably one of the most famous orators of his day. Chrysostom was about 21 years old when he was baptized into the Christian faith. Sounds very strange to us, but in those days that would not have been strange at all. Many of these, many of these doctors and many Christians in general were baptized for whatever reason at a much later age. And at the time he was baptized, he was in the midst of studying law. He would leave those legal studies and he began to join a rather loosely knit community of men who led a somewhat hermetical life. He lived with them for a while and then he decided that he wanted a desert experience and he went off by himself for two years and lived in the desert. And the dampness of living in a cave in the desert uh, worked such havoc with his health that he realized he could no longer keep up this, this very, very solitary life that he was living. And so so he decided to return, study for the priesthood, and indeed he did become a priest in Antioch after about five years of formal study. After he became a priest, it's interesting to listen to where his priorities lay. And this is what his biographer relates. The instruction and care of the poor he regarded as the first obligation of all, and he never ceased in his sermons to recommend their cause and to impress on the people the duty of almsgiving. Antioch, he supposed, contained at that time 100,000 Christian souls and as many pagans. These he fed with the word of God, preaching several times in the week and frequently several times in the same day. Something very interesting in the life of John Chrysostom. It occurred in the year 387 A.D. In that particular year, he, de he delivered a series of sermons which were called On the Statutes, On the Laws, 
would be another way to put that, I suppose. And this series of sermons that he delivered in 387 A.D. really established his credentials, if you will, as one of the greatest orators the church ever produced. He literally held his audience spellbound as he preached. And from that point on, he was, he was in demand constantly throughout the course of his life as a preacher. Now, the thing that's significant is that most historians of John Chrysostom's life will tell you that it was the year 387 when he really came into his own. He really established himself. That same year, 387, was the year Ambrose in the West baptized Augustine. Isn't it interesting? Augustine came into his own the same year John Chrysostom came into his own. Chrysostom would become the Archbishop of Constantinople in the year 398 A.D. He immediately began to cut expenses in his diocese by the simplicity of his own lifestyle, and the monies that were saved from many of his reforms he applied to the alleviation of the poor and certainly to the support of many, many hospitals. After that, he undertook the reform of his clergy. He would preach to his clergy very zealously about the kind of lives they would be living. And after he preached to his clergy about the need for living a proper kind of life, then he went and he preached to his laity. And the laity of the diocese constantly, constantly heard sermons from John Chrysostom telling them to avoid anything that was at variance with the gospel ethic. Here is an interesting, an interesting excerpt from one of those sermons. Repentance, he, he uh, preached, consists in no longer doing the same things. For he who reverts to the same sins is like the person who carves wool into the fire or pours water into a container full of holes. Enter the church and wash away your sins. For here there is a hospital and not a court of law. Do not be ashamed again to, to enter the church. Be ashamed when you sin, but do not be ashamed when you repent. Marvelous advice for anyone at any time. Well, St. John Chrysostom was also, as a bishop, very active in working with a, a woman saint, St. Olympias, and the two of them together founded a number of religious communities of women. John Chrysostom is also known for his tremendous devotion to the real presence of our Lord in the Most Blessed Sacrament. He would spend hours in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, and very, very often he would advocate this Eucharistic devotion to his people as well. Another interesting thing that John Chrysostom tried to develop was the spiritual life of his people in such a way that he would oftentimes recommend to them, why don't you get up in the middle of the night in your homes and begin praying as monks in monasteries get up in the middle of the night and begin chanting the divine office. At the same time, they're doing it in monasteries. Why do you not engage in the same spiritual practice in your homes? Many artisans, he writes, get up at night to labor and soldiers keep vigil as sentries Cannot you do as much to praise God? In another one of his sermons, he said, It is the greatest grace of all to be judged worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. It is already the perfect crown and a payment not inferior to the reward yet to come. So he was giving marvelous advice through his magnificent sermons to so many people in his diocese, but everyone did not like him. The empress didn't particularly like him. She was probably disturbed at some of the things he was saying. Various bishops did not like him. For example, Archbishop Theophilus of Alexandria was probably his chief enemy. And Theophilus 
was able to get about 35 or 36 bishops in his camp. He was in line with the empress, and all of them together decided that they would concoct a plot to have John Chrysostom removed from his diocese, and the plot worked. He was exiled on the eastern shore of the Black Sea, and it was there that he remained for the rest of his life. The Pope tried to help him. In fact, the Pope tried several times to help him. But the Pope was no match for the forces of opposition who were absolutely determined that John Chrysostom would never return to his diocese again. And so he died in a rather sorrowful way, one would have to imagine, but he certainly died after he had accomplished a tremendous amount of good. And in the 20th century, Pope St. Pius X very, very appropriately said that John Chrysostom was indeed the heavenly patron of preachers of the Word of God. Well, the second of our Eastern doctors is a man who is known to history as Basil the Great, also a very, very fine preacher. He once made an interesting statement about young people. He said, young people must be made to distinguish between helpful and injurious knowledge, keeping clearly in mind the Christian's purpose in life. So, like the athlete or like the musician, they must bend every energy to one task, the winning of the heavenly crown. It would be very interesting to know if Basil were speaking of his own interior struggles of life as he was reflecting on the lot of young people as a somewhat mature man himself. It may very, very well have been his own spiritual struggles that he was looking at. Basil was born at Caesarea, which of course was the capital of Cappadocia in Asia Minor. He was born in 329 A.D. Both of his parents are canonized saints of the church. His brother is St. Gregory of Nyssa. So you can see the kind of family St. Basil the Great came from. He studied at Constantinople, and later he studied at Athens, where two of his fellow students were, on the one hand, Gregory Nazianzen, and on the other hand, Julian the Apostate. Well, upon Basil's return to Caesarea, he began to teach rhetoric in the city, and he seemed very, very much on the verge of a quite a brilliant career. But he began to be influenced by his older sister, who also is a canonized saint of the church, St. Macrina, and she began to talk to him about the value of living a monastic life. Now, Basil, contrary to what had been done in so much of the world in those days, Basil had been baptized as a young man, very, very, very uh, small. He was not in his teens or in his twenties when he was baptized. And... As he began reflecting on what his sister said to him, he took a resolution, first of all, that he was going to serve the Lord in evangelical poverty. He visited the principal monasteries of Egypt and Palestine and Syria and Mesopotamia in order to study the religious life. And then with a very, very substantial spiritual background from all that he had observed, from all that he studied, he gathered around him a number of, of like-minded men, and Basil it was who actually opened the first monastery in Asia Minor. And for these men whom he had gathered around him, he organized a particular life, and he enunciated specific principles which became really the, the bulwark, I suppose we can say, of Eastern monasticism. So he had a tremendous influence on what would later become the, the formal writing of monastic rules in many, many monasteries in the East. As one commentator said, 
Basil lived the life of a monk in the strict sense for only five years. But in the history of Christian monasticism, he ranks in importance with St. Benedict himself. Basil was ultimately persuaded to be ordained a deacon and then to be ordained a priest. And the reason he was persuaded to leave the monastery and to live a more active life was because of the tremendous inroads that the Arian heresy was making in his area. And so he began to fight against heresy, he began to defend the faith, and he began to become enormously, enormously concerned once again with the plight of the poor of Caesarea. Caesarea would be the diocese over which he would ultimately become bishop. And this comment is made about his his concern for the plight of people living in Caesarea. During a season of drought followed by famine, he not only distributed his material inheritance in charity, but he also organized a great system of relief with a soup kitchen in which he could be seen, girt with an apron, dealing out food to the hungry. For the benefit of the sick poor of Caesarea, Basil organized a hospital just outside the city, and the hospital that he organized was really, it was called Basilad. It was a city in its own right. It was really, in the, in the words of one writer, it was worthy to be reckoned one of the wonders of the world. Now, whether or not it was one of the wonders of the world is probably debatable, but in other words, he, he organized, he built this magnificent hospital for the care of the sick poor outside of the city of Caesarea. The hospital was named for him, and named for him very appropriately. So intense was his concern for the plight of the sick poor. He championed orthodoxy, he championed the defense of the faith, every opportunity he had Sometimes he would try to do it, even outside of his own diocese of Caesarea, and when he did that, he was often considered a meddler. And some people told him point blank that he should mind his own business and confirm his, or confirm his activities, concentrate his activities, I should say, within the confines of his own diocese. But nonetheless, the Arian heresy, that heresy that denied the divinity of Christ, was so strong and had made so many inroads in the East that Basil knew he had to continually refute it. Where he was much more successful, however, was in the reformation of his own diocesan clergy. We know a great deal about his thinking on the reform of the clergy from a lot of his letters, many of which are still extant. He could rebuke his clergy when they had to be rebuked, but he seemed to always prefer the way of charity. And once again, as we have mentioned before, he always, always had the poorest of the poor in mind. But just because they were poor, they had to be concerned with other people's poverty. You are poor, he said in one sermon, but there are others poorer than you. You have enough to keep you alive for ten days, but this man has enough to keep him alive for only one. Don't be afraid to give away the little that you have. Don't put your own interests before the common need. Give your last loaf to the beggar at your door and trust in God's goodness. He was an enormously effective man as Bishop of Caesarea, and that's why it's interesting that he once wrote in a letter, For my sins, I seem to be unsuccessful in everything. Well, in point of fact, he was unsuccessful in little or nothing, but the holier a man becomes, the more he sees his very, very definite lack of success. Basil died, a very worn-out man, 
on New Year's Day, 379 A.D., at the age of 49. The whole of Caesarea mourned him as a father and protector, we are told. Pagans, Jews, and strangers joined in the general lamentation. Seventy-two years after his death, the Council of Chalcedon declared him as the great Basil, the minister of grace, who has expounded the truth to the whole earth. Quite a statement about one man from the Council of Chalcedon. We move next to Gregory Nazianzen, and we begin with an interesting description of St. Gregory Nazianzen, the third of our Eastern doctors, in view of his resolute defense of the truths promulgated by the Council of Nicaea, St. Gregory Nazianzen has been declared a doctor of the church and has also been surnamed the theologian, the theologian, a title which he shares with the Apostle John. So Gregory Nazianzen was, to say the very, very least, in distinguished company. Gregory was born in the year 329 in Cappadocia. Once again, both of his saints, both of his parents, rather, are canonized saints of the church. As a young man, he was destined for the study of law, but he went instead to Caesarea in Palestine, where there was a very, very famous school of rhetoric. Now, in those days, it was, uh, it was not at all unusual for scholars to move from one city to another, studying either rhetoric or eloquence or law or whatever it was they were studying. So we find Gregory Nazianzen studying as a young man in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. One historical account tells us this. As the vessel which bore him rolled, temper-tossed for days, the ship in other words, the young man realized with terror the danger he ran of losing not only his body, but also losing his soul, being still unbaptized. But he probably shared the views of many pious men of that period with regard to the difficulty of obtaining forgiveness for post-baptismal sin. For he does not appear to have been baptized until many years later. Now this was not the period when clerical celibacy was mandated in the church these early centuries. Gregory Nazianzen's father was a bishop, and he was a bishop who needed a great deal of help in the administration of his diocese, and so he persuaded his son to come and help him, his son Gregory, to come and help him administer the diocese, which he did. Gregory's father actually ordained him to the priesthood, to the priestly dignity, and he was trembling with fear. In fact, he, he so trembled at the thought of being ordained a priest that he decided to leave for a while and go and confer with Basil the Great. But Basil, he said, I'm not worthy of this. And it was St. Basil the Great who said, "You, it's, it's not a question of your being worthy. It's a question of God needing you, of the diocese needing you, of the people needing you, of the priesthood needing you. The apology he wrote for his flight, in other words, his flight out of the diocese, is a treatise on the priesthood which has been drawn upon by countless writers on the same subject, from St. John Chrysostom to St. Gregory the Great down to our own day. Well, Gregory did finally come back to his diocese. He helped his father administer the diocese. He served as coadjutor to his father, and finally he became bishop of the diocese on his father's death. And from there, some years later, Gregory went on from becoming bishop to becoming archbishop in the see of Constantinople. Constantinople, like so many other areas of the world, was absolutely decimated by the Arian heresy, and they needed the strength of Gregory's presence. His trials were to begin, we are told, with his entrance into Constantinople. 
For as he made his appearance, poorly clad, bald, and prematurely bent, he was ill-received by a populace accustomed to dignity and splendor. He preached and taught his little flock, and it was here that he delivered the celebrated sermons on the Trinity, which won for him the title of theologian, meaning, in effect, one who apprehends aright the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Gradually, his audience increased, and the fame of his eloquence spread. On the other hand, on the other hand, the Arians pursued him unrelentingly, with slanders, with insults, and with personal violence. They broke into his church, they pelted him in the streets, and they dragged him before the magistrates as a brawler. So Gregory did not have an easy time of it, to say the very, very least, and ultimately the Arians were successful in forcing him out of Constantinople. He went finally to his ancestral home where he had been raised at Nazianzus, and he spent the remaining years of his life tending the home which he knew so well as a boy. His poems, his letters, his reputation as a writer, as a speaker, and as a teacher of the faith to a congregation that had been exposed to much, much controversy certainly have earned Gregory Nazianzen the title Doctor of the Church. And finally, our last Eastern Doctor of the Church is St. Athanasius. We can never mention the name Athanasius without using a Latin expression, and that Latin expression is Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. It seemed as though the whole world were pitted against this man who was so intent on defending the orthodoxy of the faith. Johannes Quaston, in his wonderful study of patrology of the fathers of the church, sums up St. Athanasius this way, of undaunted courage, unflinching in the face of danger or adversity, and cowed by no man, he was the steadfast champion and steadfast defender of the faith of Nicaea. The Arians regarded him as their chief enemy and did everything to destroy him. To silence him, they enlisted the aid of secular power and corrupt ecclesiastical authority. Four times, four times he was banished from his Episcopal see and he spent more than 17 years in exile. That all his suffering could not break his resistance. All his suffering could not break his resistance. He was convinced that he fought for the truth and he employed every means at his disposal to combat his powerful adversaries. They are the words of Father Johannes Quaston in his wonderful study of Patrology. Well, St. Athanasius was born in Alexandria, received his classical and theological education there. He was ordained a deacon, and he accompanied the Bishop of Alexandria on his travels to the Council of Nicaea. It's interesting as the career of St. Athanasius developed. He does not show himself, says one commentator, he does not show himself a professional scholar. And he willingly left to others the task of exploring the secrets of learning. But his knowledge of scripture, his skill in debate, and the depth of his conviction, this is the important thing now, the depth of his conviction have gained the admiration of succeeding generations. 
one contemporary who was alive with St. Athanasius, who knew him quite well, said that in all his works, his style is very clear, very free from redundancies, and very simple, but it is earnest and it is deep. And the arguments of which he has an abundant store are extremely forceful. So he wasn't coming across as an in-depth theologian. He was coming across as a practical man with sincerity and forcefulness. And he preached the truths of faith with that same sincerity and that same forcefulness. He was faced with a secular culture, the secular culture of the Greek world, Hellenization, we called it. And he wanted to try to combat that, not necessarily by fighting it and saying secular culture is no good, but rather trying to blend Christianity with, with the secular Greek Hellenizing culture in such a way that he proved very positively and very, very effectively that Christianity was indeed reconcilable with the Greek secular Hellenist, Hellenistic culture of the day. And that, in a very, very practical way, Athanasius did. And he did it very, very effectively. All of his efforts, in his own words, in his writing, attempt to substantiate what he called the very tradition, teaching, and faith of the Catholic Church from the very beginning. The faith which the Lord gave, the faith which the apostles preached, the faith which the fathers kept. Against all of the secular arguments of his opponents, my dear friends, he continually tries to establish the primacy of faith over reason. And in his trying to do that, the entire Catholic Church, East and West, owes a tremendous debt of gratitude to St. Athanasius and to each and every one of the Eastern doctors.